Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Now, I'm working on getting my list of follows uh, for a Twitter account for this show, so do stay tuned for that in the near future. Um, I think it's been good for me to be off of Facebook, so I think I'm going to stay off of it largely. And so, yeah, do stay tuned for a Twitter account. I have a Twitter account. I just haven't posted anything to it in a long time. Okay, so let's get started tonight with a sort of unusual story about one of our favorite characters around here, Crows. It has to do with the complex and often murky idea of just what constitutes a species. So for instance, we talked about that last week in terms of anthropology, where you have people who are either lumpers, who think that several different, what other people think are species are basically all the same species. And then there are splitters who think that each Uh, morphologically different skeleton should be placed into a different species. And so we really have a, uh, we both have a very specific idea of what we mean by a species and also a huge spectrum of uh, either slight or rather large disagreements about A, what that definition actually means and B, how things in nature actually manage to fit into uh, that definition. And so let us talk about that in regards to these crows. So in the Pacific Northwest, there have been two species of crow identified, the American crow and the Northwestern crow. The two species supposedly split hundreds of thousands of years ago when glaciers moved into and out of the area, Uh, cutting off the two species from one another. And so there was a big period in time where there was lots of glaciers sort of uh, coming down out of the north and then retreating and then coming back again. Um, And so there were places that were getting cut off from one another. They were first officially declared separate species in 1858, based on small differences in body measurements and in their calls. Well, it turns out that when researchers looked at the genetic makeup of the two species, they found that the Northwestern crows have been hybridizing with the American crow and have started to become the same species once again. They seem to be interbreeding along a 560-mile-long border uh, across the Pacific Northwest. It means that speciation speciation isn't a one-way process, Dave Slager, the study's first author and a PhD candidate in biology at the University of Washington, told Gizmodo. It can even go in reverse sometimes. So the northwestern crow is particular to beaches and mudflats and is slightly smaller with a huskier voice than the the much more common American crow. At least that's how it has been defined in the past. 
And so because these are, frankly, very subtle differences, it was hard for ornithologists to tell exactly what was happening and if the two species were actually interbreeding without getting a genetic analysis. And so the team of scientists from the University of Washington, the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture, and the U.S. Geological Survey analyzed a group of samples from crows of both species, including 218 frozen tissue samples, 35 blood samples, six feather samples, and samples from the European carrion crow as a control. They looked at both cellular and mitochondrial DNA and compared the data to see if the genetic material did actually suggest that there were two distinct species. According to the paper published in Molecular Ecology, the researchers found that the two species do indeed have separate evolutionary lineages, with the speciation event having taken place around 443,000 years ago, again during a time of glacial movement in the region. And they found that the area in which the two species are hybridizing is much larger than that for a typical organism. Crows in the region of western Washington state and British Columbia are almost all hybrids that can be tied to neither original species in particular. And they found that hybridization between the two species has been going on for many generations. So will this mean the end of the designation of northwestern crows? It's not clear, though other species of the, with this type of overlap have been merged back together in the past. Now, that's the purview of the American Ornithological Society. And so the authors weren't able to give a definitive answer on that. They can only report their results and see what happens. But what it showcases nicely is, again, the ability of nature to really confuse us um, and to avoid being placed into neat boxes that humans so readily crave. Nature is messy and it's uneven. And sometimes the answer to questions that have to do with nature really is maybe. I think it's something that humans need to be better at handling. Our brains crave black and white solutions and categories, but so much of nature just doesn't fit into those parameters. It makes me think, for instance, of the social construction of race. And so, of course, this is still a very hot issue. Um, and I think that it's important to talk about what science can and cannot say about it. Now, many people are absolutely convinced that race has a specific genetic profile and that you can tell people apart based on their genetics in some sort of scientific way. Now, that's only very weakly true. There is an obvious truth to the idea that people living in separate ge geographical regions for long periods of time will have a certain amount of genetic drift that will make them distinguishable from other people. But these genetic differences are often extremely superficial and are not a ready platform on which to base the kind of policies and ideas that have been formed around race and races. Systematic forms of racism have done much more to create divides than any kind of genetic variation. And again, the notion of separate human races is largely a social construct. We can actually trace back periods of time where 
people started dividing um, people up into different kinds of races. And so, um, and some of that has been um, exaggerated. So I was reading an article recently, um, I was just skimming it. So, uh, and they were talking about how it's unclear whether or not the kind of system um, in South America that has been touted from time to time actually was um, in use in regular parlance. So there's this idea that they had a whole uh, sort of spectrum of different people. And depending on who your parents were and your grandparents, you could be placed on different parts of the spectrum. And so um, that's where we get words like um, qualtroon from and uh, things like that. And so there is some, some sort of revisionist history uh, or, you know, actually going back and looking again that says that that might not have been such a huge deal but we still know that people have been dividing each other into these sorts of race blocks for a very long time and so we need to be careful when we try and put that onto actual science and so it's especially important that people have this idea that you can look at people's race and are able to tell things about them that are true, such as that there is a genetic basis in differences between areas like intelligence or physical fitness. And that's just not a scientific fact. It is something that has been projected onto race by a particular cultural zeitgeist. We can't understand race and racism outside of the context of history, and more importantly, economics, because the driver of the triangular trade was capitalism and the accumulation of wealth. And of course, part of the triangular trade was slavery. And this is from Jane O. Efekwanigwe, a medical anthropologist at the Center on Genomics, Race, Identity, and Difference at the Social Science Research Institute at Duke University. It is also impossible, again, to know someone's ancestry, for instance, based on how they look. And so um, that's one of those things that people are like, oh, well, you know, you look white or you look black. Well, um, We've seen on countless uh, television episodes and things like that where people realize um, or are told that they have ancestry of some sort that they had no idea that they had. Um, and so it's just not possible to be able to just look at someone and say, oh, well, that person is clearly white um, and has clearly all white ancestors or black or Asian or any kind of group. If you take a group of a thousand people from the recognized races of modern people, you will find a lot of variation within each group, notes Nina Jablonski, an anthropologist and paleobiologist at the Pennsylvania State University, who is known for her research into the evolution of human skin color. But, she explains, the amount of genetic variation within any of these groups is greater than the average distance difference between any two groups. 
What's more, there are no genes that are unique to any particular race, she says. This means that if you took a random sample of people from different parts of the world, there would be no shared genetic markers that appear in only one population and is completely absent from other populations. For instance, European and Asian populations have almost identical sets of genetic variation. Now, Jablonski's work on skin color is a great example of this. Our research has revealed that the same or similar skin colors, both light and dark, have evolved multiple times under similar solar conditions in our history. A classification of people based on skin color would yield an interesting group of people based on the exposure of their ancestors to similar levels of solar radiation. In other words, it would be nonsense. And of course, what she means by nonsense is that it would tell you nothing important about the population other than their ancestors lived in a particular geographic region. And that tells us very little about who they are and what they are capable of. And again, the amount of genetic variation within the so-called races is actually larger than the overall difference in between these populations Races were created by naturalists and philosophers of the 18th century. They are not naturally occurring groups, Jablonski emphasized. And of course, one of the real issues here is how people continue to use this outdated and outmoded model of human variation to make decisions and enact policies. It's not just that we have constructed these categories. We have constructed these categories hierarchically hierarchically. Efequinigwe says, understanding that race is a social construct is just the beginning. It continues to determine people's access to opportunity, privilege, and also livelihood in many instances. If we look at health outcomes, she said, and so one tangible example of health disparity comes from the U.S., where data shows that African-American women are more than twice as likely to die in childbirth, childbirth compared to white women. And we saw that with the um, problems that Serena Williams had when she was giving birth. And, you know, she's an extremely prominent, very well-known, very well-respected um, in most uh, realms person. And even she couldn't get the kind of health care that she needed because of the way that African-American women are perceived. Um, and obviously, a lot of this is not conscious. Uh, it is unconscious. And that is actually makes it sort of worse, obviously, because people don't realize they're doing it. Um, it's much easier to confront and deal with someone whose racism is um, upfront and is obvious than someone who is just subtly doing things that are favoring one group over another, and they don't even realize they're doing it. It's much harder to convince them that they're doing something and to get them to actually be able to change. And so this idea that they're, the fact that people keep trying to uh, suggest that race actually has something to do with genetics just makes that even harder. 
And so the thing, though, is that, of course, this doesn't mean that certain groups don't have shared cultural backgrounds that can be very distinct. And so the idea of ethnicity, while still somewhat ambiguous and hard to uh, pin down, I think is a much more interesting and informative category for dividing humans. For instance, in the United States, there are many people who identify as Native American. Now, some can trace their lineage back generations. Uh, Many can even do it to before the arrival of Europeans. But there are others who can't. And so many Native Americans today don't have pure Aboriginal genetics. Because, of course, there has been a lot of assimilation, a lot of uh, just frankly, uh, a lot of Native American women were raped uh, during the early years of uh, uh, the the push westward uh, during Manifest Destiny. Uh, that was part of the Manifest Destiny was that we owned this land and everything on it, including the people. And so uh, much like with Uh, African-Americans who are uh, descendants of slaves, there is a lot of white blood moving through those genetics because of things like rape and um, what one might argue was consensual, but not actually uh, consensual in many cases, relationships. And so... The thing about it is that even though they don't have pure Aboriginal genetics, they nonetheless, which of course, again, is not really a thing um, that is easy to parse out, uh, but they nonetheless have, are part of a distinct cultural heritage. And so one such tribe is the Cherokee Nation, and they have just become the first indigenous group from the United States to donate heirloom seeds to the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, uh, which is often known by the moniker the Doomsday Vault. (laughs) And so um, you've probably seen this before. It is a structure in Norway uh, that was constructed to uh, hold uh, crop seeds. And so it stores almost a million samples of crop seeds uh, in case we ever need to, you know, rebuild civilization after some sort of catastrophe. Um, and so, you know, just in case, putting some stuff away. (laughs) And so, uh, members, most of the members of the Cherokee Nation, uh, live in Oklahoma, uh, but they count more than 370,000 members worldwide. And so they are donating nine ancient pre-Columbian cultivars. This is history in the making, says Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. It is such an honor to have a piece of our culture preserved forever. Generations from now, these seeds will still hold our history and there will always be a part of the Cherokee Nation in the world. And so the seeds that are being donated will be from a sacred corn variety, which is used during cultural events and called Cherokee White Eagle Corn, uh, four other varieties of corn, Cherokee Long Greasy Beans, Cherokee Trail of Tears Beans, Cherokee Turkey Gizzard Black and Brown Beans, and Cherokee Candy Roaster Squash. 
And I have to say, uh, those are some great names. Um, I often uh, have noted with some um, regret that scientists are terrible about naming things. They generally name things something extremely straightforward and boring. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's nice to have something that is distinctive. And boy, howdy, are those distinctive names. Um, I really want to try some of that candy roaster squash, <laughs> frankly. Um Maybe not so much the long, greasy beans. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think it's very fun. Because sometimes it's good to just have something that's very distinctive. So the first world uh, indigenous group to contribute seeds were um, from samples that were collected in Peru, from indigenous people in Peru back in 2017. But this is a very significant move for the Cherokee. As Cherokee, one of our beliefs or tenets is that as long as we have our Cherokee plants, the Cherokee can remain, Cherokee Nation's Senior Director of Environmental Resources, Pat Gwynn, told Modern Farmer. To me, this lends a little bit of infinity or perpetuity to that belief. Cherokees cannot be Cherokees without their Cherokee plants. And so I think that's really, really cool that they're able to um, have these put into that um, vault and that they are willing to um, share these with people and to have them in this sort of high-tech facility um, because obviously there is still a long and uh, storied history of uh, distrust for science and technology amongst many um, indigenous people in the Americas because and in, over the world um, because scientists were, you know, not so great to them for many, 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 many still doing it sometimes many years. And so um, it's hard to... Uh, sometimes I think it's hard for people to sort of let that go and do something uh, like this. And so I think that's really cool. And I think that obviously it has great benefits for the nation themselves. So that is very good. Um, and we've talked about that sort of tension over the years. Um, and it's very clear that, you know, um, we could talk about that for an entire show, but uh, let's Let's table that for tonight and continue with our other stories. So speaking of plants, there is an interesting uh, little discovery that's happened recently. Okay, it's not really a new discovery so much as the confirmation of a long suspected fact. So the plant Skyab Skybalium fungiform is weird. It's found along the Atlantic coast of Brazil and it is a parasitic plant feeding off the roots of other plants. It is only visible above ground when it sprouts, and it sprouts a sort of red fungus-like uh, package filled with tiny little white flowers in order to sexually reproduce. And so these flowers are surrounded by hard, uh, sort of bright red scale-like uh, bracts. Uh, which prevent the usual insect pollinators from being able to get to the nectar and pollen because the flowers are underneath this sort of bright red. Uh, it looks kind of like, um, uh, like, like on a pineapple. 
And so uh, the sort of bracts on a pineapple, if you think about it that way, think about it like that. And so in order to access the flowers, the bracts have to be peeled away. In the early 1990s, Sao Paulo State University's Professor Patricia Morilato first made the prediction that opossums with their opposable thumbs would be the best candidate to be a key pollinator for Skybalium fungiform. Now, due to the need to, uh, for that, due to the need to peel back the bracts to get at those tiny flowers. They once even captured an opossum with nectar on its nose, but the observations went unpublished because they didn't have any direct evidence. So in 2017, Sao Paulo State University's Dr. Felipe Amarin began to study the plant, which he independently surmised would be pollinated by a non-flying mammal. His students, actually also uh, independently, suggested that rodents might be the main pollinator of the species. At that time, neither of us knew anything about the unpublished observations made by Professor Morilato in the 1990s, noted Dr. Amarin, who traveled with his team to the Serra do Yapi Biological Reserve in Brazil in May of 2019 and set up night vision cameras to record who exactly was visiting the flowers. They filmed opossums in the act pushing their faces into the flowers to eat the nectar. They filmed 14 visits from opossums over a four-night period. We sent Professor Morilato the footage. When she watched the video, she sent me a voice message as excited as we were when we first saw the opossums visiting the flowers because it was the first time she saw something she predicted two and a half decades ago, Dr. Amarin explained. Now, the researchers had made their assumptions based on the botanical idea of, quote, pollination syndrome. And so this is an idea that suggests that floral attributes such as color, morphology, scent, and size are an indication of adaptations to the plant's main pollinators. So one of the things I always think about are the really long, thin uh, flowers that um, hummingbirds are attracted to. And so those flowers have developed to attract that particular kind of uh, pollinator and have adapted their flowers to the anatomy of the pollinator. And so once the plants had been opened by the opossums, other pollinators, such as bees and wasps, and even hummingbirds, helped the process along. Based on the flower morphology, we could safely predict that this plant should be pollinated by non-flying mammals, but the occurrence of hummingbirds coming to the ground to visit these flowers was something completely unexpected to me, Dr. Amarin said. So that is a very neat set of discoveries. Um... And not that it's a discovery, but um, I was just remarking this afternoon that I was very excited. Um, I personally have a uh, suet feeder out in front of my house, and I have had at least three distinct forms of or dif distinct species uh, of um, woodpeckers coming. Uh, and so I've got the little hairy and the downies, and then I've also got um, the um, the 
big, um, I forget what they're called. Um, they're not obviously pileated, but they're the sort of ones that are here that are all, that are kind of between the, um, the hair, the hairy and the downy and the, uh, pileated. And so it's been really cool to be able to see these, to see this big, um, woodpecker coming to my suet feeder from time to time. And, uh, he was sitting in the tree, he or she was in the tree this afternoon. I couldn't tell, um, if it was a male or a female, cause they were high up. Um, but I could see their very long beak and it was very cool. <laughs> okay. Let us, uh, take a break and do some PSAs and show promos. And then we will come back and talk about a, uh, fairly harmless, but in the end, uh, still a problem, uh, Twitter, uh, um, trend that happened the other day. So do stay tuned for more from evidence-based radio. Uh, hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! 
why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Okay, and we are back with more evidence-based radio. And, like I said, we are going to talk about Twitter for a second. <laughs> and so this seems kind of like a silly story, but it has an important message. Um, on Monday, the 10th, the so-called broom challenge began to trend on Twitter. Now, if according to the first tweets, NASA had announced that the day had a special significance for gravitational force on the Earth. Okay, so NASA said today was the only day a broom can stand up on its own because of the gravitational pull. Twitter user Michaela with lots of A's uh, wrote, accompanying a video of herself balancing a broom. The tweet received over 250,000 likes by midweek and started a trend of people posting videos of more broom balancing. Now, while this may seem like a harmless hoax, it shows the power of social media to quickly spread false information. This is another social media hoax that exemplifies how quickly pseudoscience and false claims can go viral, NASA said in a statement. While this hoax was harmless, it also shows why it's important for all of us to do some fact-checking and research, including checking in with at NASA and NASA.gov for real science fun facts before jumping into the latest viral craze. And in fact, uh, some NASA... Um, employees actually posted a video of them the next day uh, balancing a broom and saying that, hey, 
physics works every day, <laughs> not just on one particular day. Um, and so it is a good reminder that we are easily led by things that sound like they could be true or that appeal to our own personal beliefs. Uh, a lot of things that we're going to talk about tonight fall into those categories. Uh, and so here's a story that's very odd, but actually a bit of good news. Uh, it's not terribly science-based, even though they did some testing. Um, but I just thought it was a lovely little story to talk about um, because it's a happy ending to something. And we could all use that occasionally. Um, and so a museum in Italy has recovered a painting that was stolen 23 years ago. Portrait of a Lady by the Austrian uh, painter Gustav Klimt was stolen in February of 1997 when the Ricci Audi Gallery of Modern Art in Piacenza, Italy was undergoing renovations. The expressionist work, which shows a uh, woman in a uh, sort of bust uh, um, image with a really interesting sort of dark green, uh, emerald green background, uh, was painted in 1916 to 1917. And it was found in an extremely unlikely place. Gardeners who were removing ivy from a wall outside of the museum found a small ventilation space. And within that space was the portrait covered only with a black garbage bag. The museum noted that the ivy covering the hiding spot had not been cut back in almost a decade. Prosecutor Ornella Chichka um, noted that further testing would be needed to determine whether or not the painting had been left in the space for the entire time or had been moved there at a later date. Art expert Guido Cosi had studied the work under infrared and ultraviolet light to confirm its authenticity. Luckily, the painting had actually been examined and filmed in 1996, at which time, using x-ray analysis, they found that there was actually an earlier painting with the face of a different woman below the final work. The correspondence between the images allowed us to determine that it's definitely the original painting, Kazi said. Now, noting, he also noted that the condition of the portrait was relatively good for having been stuffed into a wall in a garbage bag. Now, it has gone through a few ordeals, but apparently only needs, um, sorry, it's gone through a few ordeals, but only needs some routine care. Nothing particularly complicated, Kazi added. Now, the picture's frame, uh, as well as seals and labels, were examined by art expert Anna Seller, who also confirmed their authenticity. So hopefully the painting will soon return to the wall of the gallery and get back to being viewed by art lovers from around the world. So that, again, just was a very nice story. And, you know, it's sometimes one of those things where I'm just like, we should talk about something that's just nice. <laughs> okay, let's move on now and talk about some actual news from NASA. So three papers were released this week detailing the results of data analysis from New Horizons Pass of the Kuiper Belt object named Arakoth. Now, if you don't remember, Arakoth is the um, Powhatan Algonquian word for sky. Um, and you may remember that it was initially called uh, Ultima Thule until people reminded the researchers of um, 
that that words, well, it's connection to Nazi Germany. <laughs> so yeah, that was not the uh, final name it was given. So this KBO is made of two distinct lobes, once one fairly larger than the other, that researchers believe may have collided and fused at some point in the deep past. Uh, and so the results of the work are pretty amazing. Not only did they learn more about KBOs, but they also found strong evidence to support a particular theory of how planets form in the solar system. We have made a major breakthrough in understanding the process of how planetary formation works, Alan Stern, principal investigator of the New Horizons mission, said in a statement. Now, it was originally called MU-69, and so um, Eric Hoth was first discovered using the Hubble Space Telescope by astronomer Mark Bowie in 2014. Luckily, NASA had already launched the New Horizons mission to Pluto, and they calculated that there would be enough fuel to target a KBO as the craft flew past Pluto and into the farther reaches of the outer solar system. Now, the original image from uh, Hubble was just a tiny speck, uh, so it was a real treat for research researchers to get such close-up images and to be able to gather so much data about the composition of the object. They found it to be around 22 miles long with no nearby objects present, no rings, dust, satellites, nothing. Um, it does have spots and pits of varying brightness, on an overall rust-colored surface. The researchers found that the surface featured methanol, ice, and organic materials, but no water. Uh, the craters and other depressions, which are lighter in color, most likely date back to the earliest days of the solar system, at least 4 billion years ago. Because it's so far out in its orbit, the impact craters were most likely fat formed from lower energy interactions between slow moving objects rather than the more typical impact craters of fast moving objects and erosion from the sun's heat found on asteroids and comets in the inner solar system. Now they confirm that the suggestion that the objects developed from a cloud of dust that formed into small particles which gradually grew into the two distinct lobes. And as these lobes lost momentum from friction, they eventually met and merged rather than slamming into one another. This is very exciting work that could also have, again, a real impact on how we believe planets formed. According to one of the papers, it informs the accretion processes that operated in the early solar system. This could mean that the idea that objects form from collisions of increasingly large random objects might be ruled out in favor of that idea, wherein they are formed from collapsing clouds of dust, as Arakoth seems to have. Um, and so, of course, with everything, as with everything, there is a caution. We don't yet know if Arakoth is a typical KBO or is an anomaly, because that's always a possibility. And so the New Horizons team is currently looking for another object in the general vicinity of the craft's trajectory to visit in the future so that we can learn more about how Arakoth might be typical or odd amongst Kuiper Belt objects. Now, of course, remember, um, New Horizons was originally supposed to only go to Pluto. And um, I always just like to remind people how much 
uh, NASA sort of gives you more bang for your buck uh, in these sorts of projects because um, a lot of these um, missions end up being able to add secondary and tertiary missions on after the fact because they still have fuel, because things worked out exactly the way that they wanted them to, and things like that. And so it's very cool that they could, that it might actually be able to find another Kuiper Belt object to um, be able to um, examine. And that's just, it's so cool. Um, and so let's move on now and sort of go back to the more uh, theoretical ideas about uh, genetics and how that applies to uh, human beings vis-a-vis -vis things like race, and in this case, sex. So uh, let's talk about the ever-present shadow of women's lack of representation in STEM fields. In 2018, a paper in the journal Psychological Science by psychologists Gisbert Stott and David Geary suggested that women in less gender-equal countries like Algeria and the United Arab Emirates had higher levels of women in STEM fields than those in more egalitarian countries like Norway and Finland. They spun this data to basically imply that women weren't necessarily biologically less capable of success in STEM fields. They were just less interested than men in STEM fields. So some said, of course, based on this uh, data, quote unquote, that clearly that meant there was no point in initiatives that aimed to boost the number of women entering these fields. However, Meredith Wright and Sarah S. Richardson, both with the Gender Sci Lab, an interdisciplinary group of scientists and gender studies scholars at Harvard, decided to try to replicate the results. And their findings do not match the story told by this previous research. They looked into the data and found that there were large irregularities for instance, Poland had 43.63% of STEM graduates being women, which would have placed it fifth of the 45 countries looked at. However, um, the researchers in this original paper had placed Poland in the 20th position. And so after Reich and Richardson uh, shared some of their findings with the original journal's editors. Uh, the editors uh, did an investigation, uh, and they found that Stoet and Geary had not actually been looking at women's share of STEM degrees, as they had claimed, but rather used an undisclosed measurement that they created, which they said had to do with women's propensities rather than the raw numbers. The focus on propensities is a trend in the broader conversation about the role of social and biological factors in women's and men's STEM achievement, the pair note. Now, Algeria, for instance, was of particular concern. In Algeria, 53% of women are STEM graduates. However, only 9% of women college graduates chose a degree in STEM versus 13% for men. So while they claimed they were looking at the 53% measurement, they were actually focused on the other measurement. And so the paper required extensive corrections. And so 
Now we have a new paper by the Gender Sci Lab researchers, which was published this week, and it points out the conceptual and empirical problems with the, quote, gender equality paradox in STEM. And they actually found that it did not persist when the measures of gender equality and achievement were changed. Reich and Richardson summed up the state of scholarship from the old guard thusly. <laughs> 20 years ago, biological hardliners, including Geary, argued that women are biologically less capable in the STEM fields. Now that women are outnumbering men in many scientific and medical fields, outperforming males on many standardized STEM tests, and receiving larger numbers of higher degrees of all sorts than men worldwide, hardliners such as Steven Pinker and Charles Murray have moved away from such assertions in favor of the claim that women are biologically wired to find less joy in STEM or are simply less interested in it. Don't get me started on uh, Steven Pinker. Anywho, that brings us back to Stote and Gary's use of a formula to supposedly capture how much women do or do not prefer STEM. This is problematic for many reasons, but for two main reasons. First, as with any population data, you cannot infer the motives of individuals based on population level data. And what's worse is that they suggest that women's preferences are innate and biological rather than leaving open the possibility of other explanations, such as, for instance, cultural influences. Now, the original paper also used the GGGI, or World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index, which is an imperfect tool for drawing such definitive statements. For instance, Rwanda is ranked number sixth in the world on that index, but this doesn't reflect their intense commitment to equality, but rather the harsh reality of a post-genocide society in which a large population of men have been lost to war and famine, mostly war. They conclude, as we see it, the so-called gender equality paradox is a new entry in an old playbook of arguing that biological sex differences, not social inequalities, drive the gender disparities we see in areas such as STEM. But a little digging shows that the paradox is not the product is the product not of innate sex differences in STEM interest, but the use of contrived measures and selective data to tell a particular story. And so, unsurprisingly, all in all, the initial study was looking for a particular answer and massaged the data to comply with that desired outcome. This is not only a continuation of older, even more tired uh, ideas about the presence of women in STEM, but it simply represents bad science and bad data interpretation. interpretation. It doesn't look good any way you look at it. We need more data-driven and unbiased reporting on the role of women in STEM, not more complaints that the status quo is just fine. Okay, let us quickly move on to our last story, which is another bit of myth-busting. And so this is a story about the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> now, this is a much bigger myth than uh, balancing a broom, but, e each, but both are equally wrong. Um, 
The Bermuda Triangle has become so ingrained in our society that few people stop to actually examine the evidence for such a mysterious area to actually exist. Well, the myth has just taken a large blow, uh, and it, with the discovery of an almost 100-year-old shipwreck of the SS Cotopaxi. Now, this didn't happen um, quite so recently, but it's getting press very recently. Um, and so this was a steam-powered bulk carrier that disappeared in 1925 on its way to Havana, Cuba. At the time of the disappearance, no one had even heard of something called the Bermuda Triangle. That was actually only coined in the 1960s and became popular in a best-selling book in 1974. Now, theories suggest that it may have been created, quote-unquote, when the lost city of Atlantis, which is not a thing, uh, sunk into the ocean. And of course, again, the whole thing is simply nonsense. And in fact, there are actually less anomalous events in the area than in several other areas of the world's oceans, which do indeed hold secrets to many odd disappearances. Weird things happen in the ocean, but it's mostly because we just don't understand exactly what's going on in the ocean. Um, a lot of that can probably be... Um, put down to rogue waves, which we're just learning more about in the last, um, you know, five, 10 years. Um, and so, of course, none of this has to do with the supernatural or aliens or anything like that. That's the thing about this Bermuda Triangle. If you actually look at it on a map, most of the stories associated with it aren't even in the boundaries, Michael Barnett, a marine biologist and diver who identified the wreck, uh, told Live Science. It's total rubbish. Now, the Cotopaxi was first tied to the Bermuda Triangle and extraterrestrials by, uh, of all people, Steven Spielberg in the movie Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Now, we know that the craft simply, now we know, though, that this craft simply went down off the coast of Florida. And again, not even in the region of the Triangle's supposed limits. It's located around 35 nautical miles off the eastern coast of St. Augustine in northern Florida. Um, and it was actually a shipwreck that people already knew about. Uh, it had been called the Bear Wreck by locals. Um, and so Barnett, who does a lot of diving there, uh, noticed it. And so he began to research historical newspaper articles and insurance records. He took measurements of the shipwreck and examined artifacts found at the site. The Cotopaxi was really the only option, Barnett said. It's the one that just kind of screamed out. Now, we know that the SS Cotopaxi left Charleston, South Carolina on November 29, 1925, with a cargo of coal and 32 sailors. The ship was apparently destroyed by a storm and left no survivors and no signs at the time of where the ill-fated ship had sunk. The only clue was a series of wireless distress signals picked up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is actually not far from the location of the Bear Wreck. Research done by Barnett and the British historian Guy Walters showed exactly why the ship went down so easily. After the disappearance, the families of the crew sued the company that had owned the ship. They found a carpenter who was willing to testify that the ship had broken hatch covers over the coal bins. Thus, if caught in choppy waters, the ship could easily become waterlogged and sink. We know from testimony that the hatch covers were in a very sad state of repair, Barnett said. They were in the process of repairing all of these cargo hold covers, yet they, told, they were told to sail to Cuba before they completed all of that. 
Another diver found brass valves from the wreck embossed with SV. Barnett believes these came from the Scott Valve Manufacturing Company, which had its headquarters in Michigan not far from where the Cotopaxi was built. It made sense that a local shipbuilder is going to use local supplies of hardware and things of that nature, Barnett said. That's more supporting evidence that the Cotopaxi is the bare wreck and, of course, that the Bermuda Triangle is not a thing. Okay, that is all the time I have for tonight. And so please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.